Welcome to A Life in Biography, and Happy New Year. I want to say I'm grateful to all my faithful listeners, and you have been faithful, very loyal. Uh, the number of listeners every week is pretty steady. I can't say the podcast podcast is growing in its audience, although some podcasts uh, double in size, depending on the nature of the subject, my guest, or the topic that I'm covering. So I've been very pleased uh, that people hang on uh, to the podcast, even after more than a year now of doing it. I thought before I'd get into today's topic, I would just give you a brief preview of coming attractions. Next week, I'm going to be talking to uh, Robert Hamblin, a prolific a scholar, Faulkner scholar, among other things, as well as being a poet uh, and a novelist. Uh, he's written a book, a very unusual book called Plutarch Redux, Parallel Poems in the Age of Trump. Uh, and I want to talk to him about the nature of Plutarch and biography, of course, and how he channels certain voices, including Plutarch's in the book. That'll be next week. Uh, after that, I'm going to be speaking with Julie Goodspeed Chadwick and Peter K. Steinberg about their edition of The Collected Writings of Asia Wevel. Let me tell you, this book is a revelation. Uh, it's going to make a huge impact, already has made a huge impact on me in the way I think about Sylvia Plath, as well as Asia Wevel and Ted Hughes and the whole story and the role of women in culture at a certain point or period in history. After my interview with them, I'm going to, uh, in a subsequent podcast, give quite an extensive view, uh, really a kind of review commentary on the collected writings of Wevel and Asia Wevel and how uh, they've made an impact on me. I'm also going to be speaking with Steve Paul uh, in his new biography of Evan S. Connell, or is it Connell? Uh, Steve will straighten us out on the correct pronunciation. I've read this biography, and it's just marvelous. In fact, I would call it an impeccable state-of-the-art biography. Uh, the same goes for Tim Christian, who I will be interviewing about his new biography of Mary Hemingway. And Kathy Brady, who's written a book about St. Francis, although it's more than about St. Francis. I haven't set a date for that yet, but we'll be doing that. Also, uh, a talk with James McGrath Morris about his biography of Tony Hillerman. That will be coming further on in a few months. And I'll be continuing my uh, intermittent series, What's New in Biography. Uh, and the What's New will be, in a sense, retrospective. This is 2022, and I'm still trying to catch up on what was done in 2021. Uh, so I will do that from time to time as well. And there'll be more. I forgot to mention Michelle Morgan, who's written several books on Marilyn Monroe, one of the best biographies of Marilyn Monroe, and has written a book about Marilyn Monroe in England that I'm very keen to read and to talk to Michelle about. So she'll, she'll also be on the podcast. And lots more, lots more guests, lots more topics. The topic for today is Who's Afraid of Theory? Uh, it's a response to a book that has just been published, 
titled Fear of Theory Towards a New Theoretical Justification of Biography. It's edited by Hans Renders and David Veltman. Now, Hans Renders has already been a guest on this podcast, uh, and I will be interviewing David Veltman about this book, Fear of Theory. I have an essay in this book, which I'll be saying something about in this podcast. Well, what do they mean, fear of theory? Here's the description on the back of the book. Recent academic historiography has seen a profusion of theoretical perspectives on biography, both analytical and descriptive. Yet many biographers still fear theory, which is put in quotation marks, as antithetical to accessible narration of real lives. This volume presents 18 essays by more than a dozen scholars and practitioners from Australia, Belgium, Germany, Great Britain, Holland, Hungary, Iceland, and the United States, who seek to banish such fear, writing with candor, wide experience, and familiarity with modern teaching They examine the riches greeting the biographer willing to think more deeply about biography, its inner workings, and rationale in a world still hungry for fact and truth. That's the description of the book. Uh, I have to tell you, I said I have an essay in this book. It's called, the essay is called Building a Better Biography. And it's about my decision to write a Faulkner biography, about which I'll say a little bit in this podcast. I've done, I've, I have uh, discussed that topic in earlier podcasts, so I won't go too on, on too long about that. But I want to get back to this this issue here, this one sentence in the description of the book. Yet many biographers still fear that theory, theory is antithetical to accessible narration of real lives. Um, I pause for a drink of tea and to think about that sentence. Many biographers still fear theory as antithetical to accessible narration of real lives. That's because most biographers, I would say, maybe all, virtually all biographers, think of biography as narrative how do you talk about theory in biography? In one of my early earlier podcasts, I, I showed it can be done. There have been biographers who've done this. Norman Mailer does it in his biography of Marilyn Monroe, for example. Um, but it's fairly rare. Why is it rare? And why are biographers fearful? Well, in order to talk about theory, in some sense, You have to talk about yourself. In other words, you have to take your eye off your subject, at least in some sense. And that's going to annoy readers. Uh, They come to read a biography of John Kennedy or Napoleon or Sylvia Plath or William Faulkner, you name it. And the last thing they want is the biographer going on and on about his theory of biography or just about himself or herself. Uh, That's very difficult to do. Uh, I've attempted to do that in some ways. Mailer can do it. 
because he's got this established public persona. Uh, so he can rely on that. Most biographers don't have such a persona, and it would take some effort to establish such a persona in a book. It can be done sometimes in an afterword or in a foreword or a preface to some extent. But how to get into the text itself, which in some ways raises issues about what biography is, who's the audience for that? There's a very small audience for that, probably, as there is a relatively small audience for this podcast. What I did fairly early on in my career as a biographer, in my second biography of Lillian Hellman, for example, I included some dramatic episodes, so to speak, very short, usually less than a, a page, uh, where I take you inside the interview, where I present it as a play. That is, I'm asking questions, I'm identified as Rollison, and I get the response from the person I'm interviewing. And sometimes that's crucial because I could just have a note, you know, interview with so-and-so where I got this information. But sometimes where and how you got the information and the person responding to you in that information is crucial. Uh, and that's what I try to show in the last days of Sylvia Plath when I discuss my uh, conversation with L. Alvarez about Sylvia Plath and talk about my feelings as I approach his flat in Hampstead and what I'm hoping to get out of the interview, I created again as a kind of drama, a kind of dialectic. But think of this, um, that was not my first book on Sylvia Plath. Uh, the first book was a, a biography, American Isis, where I don't appear in that guise as the biographer specifically. Um, I felt that I could do it in a second book uh, because I had built up a kind of context and a kind of momentum that I thought allowed me to get away with that in the last days of Sylvia Plath. And I also built up that momentum by talking about the beginning of the book and how I uh, first arrived in England in 1963, just a few months after Plath died. And so I have these vivid memories of what England was like uh, as an American, as Plath was an American, coming from uh, an America that, that hadn't suffered the war in the way that England had suffered the war, and so on. I won't go into all that. But again, it allowed uh, the reader to get some insight into who is telling the story. And that's part of what I think um, this book, Fear of Theory, is about, uh, is biographers showing how they get into the story of their uh, biographies. At the same time, that very word, theory, is rather grand, isn't it? I mean, we could speak, for example, of a theory of the universe, um, how it, its origins, for example, and scientists can agree, disagree, and they can present a theory. Biography, by its nature, is personal, it's individual, it's particular. Um, each biography, in a sense, each biography I've written, in a sense, has, by implication, its own theory of proceeding. I certainly didn't proceed the same way uh, with all of my biographies. Why not? Well, in some cases, I was dealing mainly with archival material. In some cases, I was dealing much more with 
interviews. Um, in some cases, I had had some of the same experiences that my subjects had, and in a few cases, I knew my subjects. And of course, that makes a difference as well. Um, I think the, the fear or the hesitancy about theory uh, is to extrapolate from one's own experience of biography and saying, this is what a biography should be. And yet I do have certain principles, and that's one of the words that go along with theory, is your principles, your procedure and your practice, your methodology is based on, in some sense, on a theory of biography. Years ago, I've used this example before, uh, of Michael Resin, who wrote a biography of the critic Dwight MacDonald. And in a presentation, Resin mentioned as a kind of aside to a group of biographers, this was the NYU Biography Seminar, that of course, he, he, he didn't deal with the affairs that Dwight MacDonald had with his students because it wasn't germane to what he wanted to tell us about uh, Dwight MacDonald. That separation of the life and the work isn't in my theory of biography. If I were doing Dwight MacDonald's biography, I would be dealing with the whole man, and I'd be dealing with those students, with what MacDonald wrote on the page, but also who he was, the character of himself and his times, uh, and what was permitted and what wasn't permitted, for example, uh, in his uh, period of history. Um, do I think that every biographer should do that? Well, I guess that is my standard, the biography of the whole person. I recently wrote a review of a new uh, biography of W.G. Sebald, in which the biographer uh, has no room in the biography for Sebald's wife. Why? Well, it's very clear Sebald's wife wasn't cooperative. Well, I've faced those situations many times when, when a family member or a wife or a husband or a friend of the subject doesn't want to talk, and yet they're part of the story. And so I interview other people. I try to look at perhaps archival sources. Uh, I do engage in a whole variety of ways of getting at that subject, even if that person won't talk to me. And, and um, the biographer, Sebald, if she did that, uh, she didn't tell us in the book. And therefore, the, the book for me was incomplete in that sense, as good as it was in other respects. Now, as I said, I'm going to have David Veltman on this podcast to talk about um, various essays in this book and, and maybe some of the contributors of the essays as well. I haven't read the book yet, um, but I did what you would do if you got such a book and you had contributed to it. You would look at the back of the book, wouldn't you? You'd look at the index, and what would you look for? You would look for your name to see if anybody else, any of these other contributors, referred to you, to Rollison in this case. And so what I'm going to do in the guise of talking about theory is to look at these passages in the book that deal with me and my work. Uh, but first, I'm going to take a sip of tea. Okay, I'm looking at an essay by Hans Renders, uh, The Deep-Rooted Fear of Theory Among Biographers. 
And uh, he mentions me, and he has a paragraph devoted to me in this really introduction to the Fear of Theory book. And before I read it, I want to say that Hans approached me when the book was being planned and asked me to contribute to a book called Fear of Theory. And I wrote him back and I said, I'm not, I, <laughs> I wasn't afraid of theory, but I, I felt it was a little too grand for me in a sense. I couldn't see myself writing an essay about the theory of biography. I suppose I could have, uh, but I needed some prompting, some persuading. And so I said to Hans, what I would do, and I think it would be a contribution at least to the methodology of biography, is to write an essay, which I then called Building a Better Biography, which was about my assessment of previous Faulkner biographies, many of them very good, that I nevertheless found lacking in some respect. Uh, and uh, by implication, I suppose, my contribution would, would fit into fear theory. And Hans said, well, okay, do that. He was quite eager for me to do that. Now, I'll say a little bit more about my own essay in a minute. But here's Hans talking about uh, the theory wars. Of course, one of the other things about theory, especially in the world of English departments, is that uh, I got my PhD in 1975, and uh, theory was just taking off, that is, in English departments. Um, in another five years, it, it became all the rage. Uh, you had to know about theory. I, I knew nothing, of, I shouldn't say nothing, but I knew relatively little about literary theory, uh, and it wasn't part of my preparation as a graduate student at the University of Toronto. Uh, and it, it just became a foreign world to me. Uh, and uh, that world treated me as a foreigner, that is, as a biographer who uh, essentially didn't count in the academic scheme of things. Hans says in this paragraph that uh, deals with me, there is, however, a common code. Whatever you think of theory, he's saying there's a common code. Collecting material from a reasoned proposition, questioning it, and eventually making a story of it. That's a rather neat formulation of biography. Let me read it again. Collecting material, you go to archives or you interview people or you get documents and records and so on. You collect this material from a reasoned proposition. Now, I don't know all, bi all biographers think that they have a proposition. I did going into the biography of William Faulkner, and I'll say something about that. Questioning it and eventually making a story of it. Carl Rollison shows us how biographers can learn from previous biographers of the same person. In his case, William Faulkner. What are the theoretical implications of an outline for a biography. Consequently, he's quoting me, consequently the biographer, like one of Faulkner's own characters, has to, at some points, speculate in order to complete the story of that character, William Faulkner. With Faulkner, one detects, surmises, infers, imagines, and ratiocinates. That's a quotation from my essay, Building a Better Biography. In other words, I wrote the biography in some ways in the spirit of William Faulkner, of his epistemological spirit, if you will, uh, of how you put together a story, uh, a narrative. 
an explanation of uh, another person's life. Um, in my uh, Building a Better Biography, I might as well, since Hans mentions it, I might as well say this uh, in my Building a Biography essay. What I found lacking in the previous Faulkner biographies was, going back to my, I guess, theory of biography, what was missing was the whole person. What do I mean by that? I mean that most of the biographies, with one exception, uh, two exceptions, which were written by historians, most of them were written by literary critics. And they were, they were very much besotted with Faulkner, the great writer, so am I. But as a biographer, I have to go way beyond Faulkner, the great writer, because I, I'm interested in the whole person who was Faulkner. And um, what was lacking in the previous Faulkner biographies was any significant dealing with his wife, going back to the wife again, as my problem with the Savald biography. In Faulkner's case, his wife Estelle had a tremendous impact on him. Uh, she wrote fiction. She wrote fiction with themes about race before he did, from a global perspective which uh, only comes uh, comes into Faulkner really with Absalom Absalom from a global perspective. Um, and so I tried to show that. The other thing I tried to show is that, of course, all the biographers talked about his period in Hollywood, but they treated it as a um, sideshow, as not important. And in this, they were following Faulkner's lead because he would often disparage his work in Hollywood. But the more I went into it, and I was prepared to do this because of other books uh, I had done, other biographies of Hollywood figures, I saw what academics call a um, intertextual Faulkner. That is, I think I was able to show that while he was working on a screenplay, an adaptation of Kenneth Roberts's novel, Drums Along the Mohawk, he was conceiving his novel, The Wild Palms. And there are even words uh, and scenes in the Wild Palms that evoke his work in Drums Along the Mohawk. Well, no one had seen anything like this at all. I was not the first one, certainly, to deal with Faulkner in film and to look at some of his screenplays or a number of scholars in the past 10, 20 years who have done that. But no one incorporated it into a biographical narrative to show that what he did in Hollywood was not separate from his work as a novelist, as a fiction writer. That that work in Hollywood had an impact on his fiction, and his fiction had an impact on the way he used his screenplays. You might remember that I used the word ratiocinate and speculation in what Hans quoted from my essay. And I did this looking at a screenplay uh, in which I had very little documentary evidence, but a lot of context about Faulkner uh, and winning the Nobel Prize and how that impacted him and how other people viewed him and how other people's view of him got into a screenplay. Nothing like this has been done in, in Faulkner biography. And it's, it's, I guess it's part of my theory uh, of getting 
inside of the biographical subject and looking at how the interplay between all the elements of a subject's life, rather than making this modernist assumption that one ought to make a separation between the life and the work, uh, and that uh, it, the work is most important, and you have to, you know, if you're dealing with Dwight McDonald, you have to subordinate everything to whatever the biography can tell you about the work. If it doesn't fit into the work, uh, then you exclude that other stuff. That simply isn't what I believe. And I don't think it's what Plutarch shows us, who I consider to be the, the father of biography, the, the theoretician, which is why I want to talk to Robert Hamblin about his, his insight into Plutarch and how uh, the spirit of Plutarch uh, can be used to interpret, uh, as he calls it in his subtitle, uh, the Age of Trump. I want to quote a few passages from um, Nigel Hamilton's essay, The Missing Key, Theorizing Modern Historical Biography. Uh, and again, I was drawn to this because of a mention of moi. Nigel says, scholars of biography all agree Modern biography is still woefully under-theorized. Moreover, most agree that, given its 2,000-year history and its continuing popularity in Western cultures, as well as its central concern to discover, to share, and to update the truth about the real lives of real individuals past and present, this is deplorable, that there isn't more interest in, I'll put it this way, there isn't much, as much interest as there should be in biography as a form of knowledge, a form of knowledge that it, it can, can certainly be compared to history, but is something else other than history, which is what, again, Plutarch said. Uh, he understood what history is. He was doing something different, even when he was dealing with historical figures. I'll give you one example. He tells you a little bit about the gossip that went around around uh, about Pericles that was um, fomented by one of his own sons. Uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, is often used to denigrate biography these days is, oh, that book is gossipy. Nigel goes on, many reasons can be and have been adduced for this under-theorization. Since historical biography has not been studied or taught in universities, save for a select few in the past, it follows it's been of scant theoretical interest to academics. However interesting intellectually and philosophically, its potential discourse has simply lacked an academic audience, even a market, whether of teachers or students. If biography is not part of the curriculum, if graduate students are not taught that biography is important, then, of course, they're not going to be thinking about, well, what constitutes a good biography? What is biography? Why is biography important? How is biography a work of literature? None of those questions even matter. At the most, biography becomes simply utilitarian. You want to know more about Joyce, so you read Richard Elman. But you don't think about how Richard Elman went about putting together that biography, which, in, which, by the way, is what I do in another book called A Higher Form of Cannibalism, Adventures in the Art and Politics of Biography. I have a chapter on Elman that describes how he went about his work 
and why he was reluctant, talk about fear of theory, why Elman was reluctant to ever divulge the way he got his information and put his book together. At one point, he was offered an invitation, of course, you can imagine. A biographer as famous as Elman got many invitations to write about the process of doing the biography. At one point, he agreed, and then he backed out. He said, no, I can't do it. Uh, and I think the reason he couldn't do it is he would have divulged, exposed uh, I, certain things about biography that he didn't want to. Now, I've never been shy about those things, I think. Um, and that's where I come in again. Uh, when Nigel says, however interesting intellectually and philosophically, its potential discourse, the theory, has simply lacked an academic audience, even a market, whether of teachers or students. Okay, that's, then he's got a footnote, footnote two. Guess what? Guess who's in footnote two? Carl Rollison. And what he cites is an essay I wrote, Liberation from Low Dark Spaces, Biography Beside and Beyond the Academy. This is a book also edited by Hans Renders and others. It's called The Biographical Turn. That was published in 2017. And I have this essay about why biography doesn't count. Uh, I'll just give you the short version of the essay. Uh, how do you know biography doesn't count? Because, for instance, we have a Levy Center for Biography at the City University of New York. Well, that sounds grand, doesn't it? A biography center. But as I pointed out uh, to a group of biographers in England some years ago, when in academic life you name something a center, you can almost be certain that you're on the periphery. I think that deserves another sip of tea. One more passage. This comes from my own essay, Building a Better Biography. Uh, one of the things uh, I did in working on this essay, Building a Better Biography, was to look for discussions of other Faulkner biographies. I had already made my assessment and actually uh, written my biography. But I went back and looked again to see what Faulkner scholars had said about biography. And there was one essay in particular on Faulkner biography that was published in 2004 by Kevin Rayleigh called... Uh, he called for a new biography of Faulkner, Yippee, that's me, that would emphasize not the monument to a great writer established by Joseph Blotner and his successors, all writing monuments, but rather a biography that would renounce its affiliation with the myth of the coherent personality and explore the ways in which subjects are many-sided and multifarious entities. Once again, this biography would renounce its affiliation with the myth of the coherent personality and explore the ways in which subjects are many-sided and multifarious entities. That's what Faulkner does in Absalom and Absalom uh, when we get this kaleidoscopic 
uh, view of the um, Thomas Sutton, for example. It's what I was very conscious of when I was writing my biography, how there are things I wanted readers to learn about Faulkner and Hollywood that were different about the Faulkner who lived uh, in Oxford, Mississippi. There's also a New York Faulkner, which is different from the Hollywood Faulkner and the Mississippi Faulkner. Uh, and then it becomes really interesting and complicated because the New York Faulkner is often writing in the Random House offices about Mississippi, about Yaknapatawpha, about his mythical county. Uh, and toward the end of his life, in the last volume of the Snopes trilogy, the mansion, New York comes in very specifically as part of his subject matter. He finally gets in experiences about New York that you learn about in earlier chapters of my biography. My last sentence in Building a Better Biography is, after discussing Rayleigh's biography, is that Faulkner, agile and adaptable, is the figure I track in my biography. I guess the last thing I would say in terms of who's afraid of theory is that it's natural, of course, for biographers to be obsessed with their subject. Sometimes uh, the biographers are a biographer of one subject and never write another biography. Uh, Nigel Hamilton has a wonderful um, passage about how uh, biography for some of us uh, becomes addictive, uh, and we go on and on and on. Um, yeah, maybe I'll read this, this one passage. Uh, it goes on from his argument about why biography is under-theorized. -theor since they have not had to study biography at college or university, they are largely ignorant of its history. That's going back to my theory of biography. Uh, I know that biographers read other biographers to get some sense, if they're new biographers, especially some sense of, well, what do you do in a biography? But I've not very many, met very many biographers who really know anything about the history of biography because it's not taught. You'd have to do it by yourself, and it's a lot of work, a lot of work. It's what I've spent the last 50 years on. So he says, since they have, they, biographers, have not had to study biography at college or university, they are largely ignorant of its history or even the modest amount of theory that has attended the genre over the centuries. When it comes to the theorization of their chosen genre, biographers, once they practice their craft, reveal themselves to be largely uninterested. Indeed, their chosen genre's worst enemy. Faced with a choice between working on another biography or helping academics to theorize, which is to say to identify and explore the idea and the ideas behind biography, almost all biographers will choose to work on their next one. Quite why is an interesting question. I would seriously argue as a practicing biographer that it's because the writing of biography becomes a literary and historical drug, an opioid, 
moreover, an addictive drug for the historical biographer. I found this with historians who couldn't um, tolerate historiography. They just wanted to get on with telling the story. They didn't want to um, go inside the, in a sense, the making of the historical narrative. That's what I attempt to do in Confessions of a Serial Biographer. Uh, and the audience, again, is very limited. That book has only sold a few hundred copies because uh, what publisher is going to be interested in that? Where is the market for it? Well, there isn't um, that much of a market for it, but there seems to be at least a small and very devoted audience for these discussions of what biography is and what, what, uh, what lies behind the making of biographies, which is certainly one of the questions that I'm going to explore with um, Robert Hamblin when we talk about his reading of Plutarch and how he's adapted Plutarch to modern times. So Happy New Year, and thanks for listening.